you know, we often think of fingerprints as this print that you can, you know, look at and, you know, identify a perpetrator um, based on how it looks. But analytical technology is getting so sophisticated that you can, in the very microscopic deposition of sweat, like a fingerprint has a very small amount of sweat in it. In that sweat, you can identify all sorts of, you know, dark things. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a freelance science journalist. And like every good podcaster, I am currently recording this episode in a tiny cloth-walled room otherwise known as my closet. The clothing and quilts and sound baffles mean I get a really nice density of sound. There's no weird echo. But it also means that I'm sweating like a pig. It's hot in here. And I feel gross about it. Sweat is a perfectly normal bodily function, and I feel gross. Why is that? Why is sweating a source of shame? And what amazing things could our sweat teach us? Here to read the sweat stains for us is Sarah Everts. Sarah is a science journalist and professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. She's written for Scientific American, Smithsonian, New Scientist, and The Economist, and she holds a master's degree in chemistry. And like me, she sweats a lot. Which is why she wrote a book on it, The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first, sweat is one of those things that almost everyone does, but it's also something that seems a bit oddly ignored. When you ask someone, for example, to like name bodily functions or fluids, you'll think of peeing and pooping and vomiting and pretty much everything else all the way down to hiccups before you think of sweat. Why does sweat slide under the radar so much, do you think? It's so perplexing to me um, because it's effectively one of the things that makes us human. But I think it has to do with the fact that we spend so much money trying to pretend that sweat and its stinky consequences don't actually exist. Like the antiperspirant and deodorant industry is, you know, $75 billion strong. And I think part of it is, you know, we're spending this money to hide our sweat. And so we're kind of continuing on with that facade, perhaps. It's funny because, you know, when I think of poop, for example, because we're talking about sweat, we might as well talk about poop. Um, I think (laughs) of like, poopery and like the tushy ads for bidets you know we're really open about the poo (laughs) but we're not so open about sweat it seems oddly taboo even for us yeah it's really fascinating because that taboo that stigma is really old um i mean you go as far back as um you know ancient rome and people are talking about uh you know stink as this embarrassing thing like i have on my wall uh this quote from uh, catullus the the poet um i don't know if you you mind if i read it uh, oh, but I, I sort of love it it's sort of my my humorous inspiration. So it's this letter where he's writing his friend uh, and then nemesis, this guy Rufus, and he says, wonder not, Rufus, why none of the opposite sex wishes to place her dainty thighs beneath you, not even if you undermine her virtue with gifts of choice silk or the enticement of a pellucid gem. You are being hurt by an ugly rumor which asserts that beneath your armpits dwells a ferocious goat. This they fear and no wonder, for it's a right-rank beast that no pretty girl will go to bed with. So either get rid of this painful affront to the nostrils or cease to wonder why the ladies flee. And so like, I mean, even in ancient Rome, people are like, you know, agonizing over their BO. I mean, at the time, you know, they're, they, they solve it with soap and, and a heck of a lot of perfume. Um, but yeah, this is something that, you know, we, we worry about. And, you know, even, you know, centuries ago when uh, Charles Dickens writes, um, uh, David Copperfield, he makes uh, one of his, uh, you know, one of the bad guys, the villains, um, Uriah Heep in uh, the book, he gives him hyperhidrosis. This is this like, you know, uh, 
problem of, of excessively sweating and, you know, presents him in this kind of really stigmatized way where he stigmatizes sweat by saying that, you know, Uriah, when he like touches a, a, a piece of paper, leaves a, a sweat track that looks like a snail track. You know, it's, it's, it, people like to point out this thing in that we do that's like fundamental to being human in this negative light. I think it's proof that humans will stigmatize basically anything. <laughs> Absolutely. So you wrote an entire book on sweat. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering, you know, did it, what got you into it? Was it Catullus? I mean, I would, I would totally get into it because of Catullus personally, but um, was it Catullus? Was it your own sweaty self? Like what really made you be like, you know, there's a book in sweat. That's really funny. There, there's sort of like a couple of things that all kind of happen simultaneously that made me think, okay, I need to do this. Um, you know, one was I got this, uh, you know, science journalists, right? You get a million press releases in your inbox. And this one day I get this press release and, and generally you don't actually open the emails. You just press delete. But the subject line is artificial perspiration. Um, and it was like, you know, advertising some new product. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I sweat enough that like, why would you need to create artificial sweat or synthetic sweat? I mean, really? Uh, and so, you know, I opened it and, and discovered that there's like this whole industry of, you know, bottles of fake perspiration, you know, being sent around the globe. And, and I was like, that's, that's fascinating. And, you know, meanwhile, I, um, you know, I, I really like to hike. And, you know, I noticed that, and I've always noticed that, you know, I'm the first person in my group of hiking buddies to start sweating. I'm the one who like pulls off their, their, you know, shirt or, or their jacket and strips down to my sports bra and shorts um, after like, just like three steps. Um, and so, you know, I, I'd always felt like I sweat a lot and, and I kind of frankly got tired of feeling embarrassed about it. And I was like, I, I think I need to learn a little bit more about it. And then, you know, last but not least, um, I moved to Germany for uh, about a decade. And whilst while I was in Germany, um, <laughs> like you, whenever you move to a new place as an expat, you kind of want to uh, get to know locals, do the thing that they do. And what Germans do is they go to the sauna. Um, and in the fact, they go to the sauna a lot. And so I started to do that too. And at first it was just kind of like very hard for me to conceptualize. I was like, I would prefer not to sweat. Why would I go and do this as a pleasurable hobby in my spare time? And then I realized, wow, there's this really amazing catharsis to sweating. And, you know, wouldn't it be better if we all, you know, enjoyed and, and, and you know, found joy in sweat instead of being always so, you know, embarrassed about it? And of course, you discovered sweat theater, or well, uh, sauna theater, which is my new uh, favorite yes. thing. I got to see it. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's called uh, Aufguss uh, Theater. And so one of the things that uh, Germans do, um, and actually this this is spread all over uh, Europe, um, is this thing called uh, Aufguss, um, where you are in a really hot sauna and you go and you pour um, water on the rocks, which is a, a pretty standard thing and, you know, uh, is also done in Finland. Um, but what kind of distinguishes Aufguss is that there's the scented oil um, in the rock, in, in the water that you pour on the rocks. And so you get this like pulse of steam in the sauna that is also, you know, really beautifully smelling. And so you're kind of hit by this beautiful pulse of fragrant hot air. And then um, this is where it gets weird. Uh, so then the Aufguss master uh, pulls out a towel and starts whipping it around so that uh, you get like hot gusts of this fragrant air on you. Um, and uh, it really, really makes you sweat. You just start to pour. It opens your floodgates. Um, and it's actually kind of a challenge sometimes to, to like stay in the sauna for the entire uh, ceremony. And uh, oh my God, you do not want to have Teutonic side eye because if you stand up and can't handle the heat uh, during this Aufgu ceremony, they will glare at you um, as you like sneak out. So, so you, 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 you stand it, you, you withstand it. But 
the next like level of awesomeness and or weirdness is this thing called uh, Aufguss Theater, where that person who's um, flipping around the towel is not only whipping hot air around thanks to um, the, the towel, but they're, they're doing towel tricks. So they're like throwing the towel in the air and like a pizza, like you would do with a pizza and like doing all sorts of like fancy dance moves. And by the way, there's music and sometimes there's costumes and video projections and special effects. And in fact, like there is uh, an Aufguss Theater World Championship where um, people perform in like 13 minutes a small play um, in the sauna, uh, dancing around with towels and costumes um, while, you know, hundreds of people sit naked uh, watching. And it is surreal and wonderful. I just, I want to do it so bad. (laughs) It's great. This is Um, what I miss most from like pre-pandemic times. (laughs) So before we get into kind of the biology and the culture of sweat aside from the sauna theater, um, I do want to note to the listeners that we did do an episode on the evolution of sweat and why it is that our sweat stinks. It's episode 526. And not only is it awesome and sweaty, it actually includes Yana Kambarov, who Sarah yes. interviewed for her book. So you should absolutely check it out. <laughs> she is so great. Now, so most people know that sweat helps us cool down. But one of the amazing things about your book is that we learn it is not the only option. And of course, yes, there's panting and panting is probably fine. But there are animals have so many other amazing options. <laughs> to cool down. And by comparison, sweating is practically delicate. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the animals, especially the vultures, which are my new favorite party piece of inspiration, which is why I never get invited to parties. (laughs) And neither do I. That's what happens when you write a book about the science of sweat. Um, Okay, so yeah, animals are, when you know what animals use to cool down, um, it makes sweat look um, really beautiful in comparison. So effectively sweat works um, because it's evaporating um, water off our bodies, right? And it's whisking the heat off our skin uh, away into the atmosphere. But if you are not a human and don't have um, millions of sweat glands embedded in your own skin, you have to rely on other bodily fluids, which if you think about other bodily fluids, those include vomit, saliva, pee, poo. (laughs) And uh, so vultures um, cool down by uh, pooping on their legs and their their poop is pretty liquid. And so it evaporates off and and cools down um, their legs, which cools down the blood circulating nearby. Seals, for example, will pee on themselves um, and let that evaporate off. Um, Honeybees uh, will vomit on themselves and let that evaporate off to cool down. And, you know, they're doing this because death by heat stroke is an appalling way to die. It's really not good. Um, And evaporative cooling, this evaporation of water off your body is really one of the most efficient ways to cool down. And humans, as I said, like we have millions of these uh, little machines to do this in our own body. And it can do it also really carefully, right? If you think about peeing or pooping or vomiting, it's hard to like release just the right amount um, without releasing too much or too little, right? So like sweating, we can, you know, sweat consistently and start and stop. When you're cooling down with these other bodily fluids, you kind of like purge and then you have to like really, really rehydrate before you have enough to to do that again. So yeah, sweating is not only um, way less gross than what other animals um, are doing sometimes. Uh, It's also super efficient. (laughs) And, you know, when you think about the, the seals that pee on themselves and the bees that vomit on themselves. Oh, and the best part about that is that other bees then go and lick it up because you don't yes. want to waste that good vomit. Um, you know, by comparison, sweating is positively dainty. 
It is. It's beautiful. I mean, think about like a subway in the middle of summer, right? Imagine if we weren't all just sweating in there. Imagine if we were like peeing, puking and licking ourselves to coolness. I just sweating is like perfection in comparison. I was just going to say, I mean, you're talking about people doing, you know, peeing and vomiting and whatever in the subway. Um, I'm just going to say you haven't been on the DC Metro. (laughs) Yes, that does happen. But imagine if we all had to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one of the things I found really fascinating about sweat is that this is a natural bodily function. And but we've always been embarrassed. And what's fascinating to me about this is that usually we're not super embarrassed by the fact that we do sweat. We tend to be really humiliated by the smell, right? And and covering it with perfumes and stuff. Um, but what I love is that nobody ever really seemed to think this was a problem that needed like actual product solving until the past 100 years or so. And I was wondering if you could talk about kind of the evolution of deodorant and where that really came from. Yeah, it's kind of really, it's really interesting because of course, you know, about a hundred years ago is when um, the first deodorants and antiperspirants uh, become widely adopted. And I, I I use widely adopted, not invented because they were, in, you know, started getting invented, you know, in the late 1800s, but nobody wants to buy them. Um, first of all, it's a Victorian era and, you know, nobody wants to talk about any bodily fluids, uh, sweat included. Um, but also people just don't really think that they need these products. You know, they've been doing fine with soap and water and a little perfume. Thank you very much. And so, you know, the first, um, deodorant and antiperspirant entrepreneurs really have to, um, convince, uh, the population, the public, that um, sweating is a problem and that uh, deodorants and antiperspirants are a solution to this problem. And um, even that is really tricky. So um, in the book, I talk about this one product, Odor Oh No, um, which I love, like Odor Oh No, um, (laughs) which is actually uh, an antiperspirant. And it's uh, invented actually by a Cincinnati doctor who's not really worried about his armpit sweat, but he is worried about his hands uh, because when he's doing operations in the summer, he's worried about his um, knives, I guess, uh, slipping. So he doesn't want to have sweaty hands in the summer. Now he has a daughter and her name is Edna, Edna Murphy. And she thinks, huh, this stops uh, hand sweating. Let's try it in my armpits. And um, effectively, she decides to create this product, Odor Oh No, um, that goes on to actually be the breakthrough product for deodorants and antiperspirants. It's not the first to be invented, but the difference is that she hires a a brilliant marketing manager, a guy named um, James uh, Webb, who effectively... um, instills the fear of stink in America. And particularly in America's women. Yeah. And so I think, so what his advertising does is he supersizes the fear and anxiety people feel about sweat. So, you know, you know, as I mentioned before, it's not like humans um, haven't stigmatized sweat over millennia. We have, but um we haven't, like, it wasn't until about 100 years that uh, we kind of, this turned into, you know, not just a, a kind of a, an annoying, possibly normal aspect of, of real life to this thing that we all need to worry about with intensity. And so, um, so like, for example, uh, you know, the issue of body odor or say halitosis isn't new. Um, folks have complained about it, uh, you know, throughout history. There's this great anecdote in Catherine Ashenberg's book, The Dirt on Clean, about how medieval priests may have used incense to survive the stink of so many unwashed people crammed into a church because, you know, in the medieval era, nobody even wanted to wash because uh, they feared that that's, uh, that increased your risk for catching the plague. Um, But 
You know, when deodorants and antiperspirants uh, take off in the early 20th century, it's because advertisers create enormous social anxiety about body odor. They present deodorant and antiperspirant as a solution to an embarrassing medical ailment, right? And this only works if your potential clients think that they have a problem or that they have an ailment. And, you know, up until this point, you know, everybody knew that, you know, there's body odor and sweat, but, you know, they have perfume, they have uh, incense, they have soap and water. And so they don't really think, you know, that they need something more than that. And so, um, Edna Murphy hires this uh, this copywriter uh, at J. Walter Thompson, the company, and uh, they do this uh, fascinating survey around 1919 that finds that many women know that deodorant and antiperspirants exist, and they know what they're aimed at doing, what they're for, but a majority of those women at the time, at least, didn't think that they had an odor pro- problem. They, they just didn't think it was an issue. And so that's when these uh, marketers realize that they need to not just inform people about, you know, what deodorants and antiperspirants do, they need to actually put the fear of stink in women. And so they use this strategy called whisper copy to do so. So to women, they say, hey, ladies, if you smell, A, nobody's going to tell you to your face, but they'll gossip behind your back about it. And B, Ultimately, this BO is going to kibosh any plans you have for finding love or marriage. And I think, you know, part of the thing that I find so dark about it, the really dark part is this evilly brilliant part that nobody's going to tell you, right? That you can't trust your own nose. Um, You can't trust anyone or anything except our product, right? So diabolical. I just... I, I hate him. I'm sorry. <laughs> How could you? It's I mean, it's become really a time-honored tradition just in advertising um, to oh, yeah. especially targeting women um, to create a problem and say, hey, here's a thing you never knew you should be embarrassed about. And now yep. you should. <laughs> I know. See, for let's... example, the uh, the birth of the razor and shaving your legs. Which was also completely made up. Yeah. What's really fascinating to me is that these first uh, deodorants and antiperspirants are, you know, marketed to women, right? Because women are not allowed to smell, even though, you know, body odor is, you know, this macho, amazing thing that makes you a manly man. Um, And what's really fascinating is, so these early marketing strategies that that put the fear of stink in women, they're they're extremely successful. And... um, Eventually, though, uh, they hit market saturation with women. They, they've they've got all the women terrified and buying these products, and they still though want to make a buck. And so they're thinking, how do we expand our market? Do 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 do. Oh, there's all these men who also stink, right? But they've kind of shot themselves in the foot by presenting deodorants and antiperspirants as this very feminine thing. And so they have to kind of do these like bend over backwards to try and make um, deodorants and antiperspirants a a macho thing um, so that, you know, they can get twice the amount of money um, from the male market. Uh, And what's kind of interesting is that they they strategize on solving this problem in two ways. Uh, One, they think, you know, what is, you know, a major insecurity for men? And, you know, at the time this was happening uh, in the 30s, um, you know, there's been this stock market crash. Uh, you know, joblessness is a huge issue. And so they're like, okay, let's put the fear of no job in men as uh, the way to get them to buy deodorants. And so a lot of the early marketing um, strategies for deodorants and antiperspirants for men are like, don't stink in the boardroom or in the office, because if you do, it's going to compromise your job. And meanwhile, they have to like make these products look super manly. And so like some of the uh, early deodorants and antiperspirants are doing things like putting, selling deodorants in like a whiskey jug, 
which <laughs> you're just like, okay. Uh, I admit, same I, I would buy that. I, I oh, would buy one. <laughs> oh, I, hell, I love whiskey. And yeah. And, Especially yeah, if my that, deodorant also smelled like whiskey. Companies, <laughs> have you considered getting on that? <laughs> well, Old Spice is kind of like going there. But oh, you can, I mean, my my secret online addiction buying addiction is uh uh either well two I, I buy kind of old advertisements um online uh the paper copies and then also i i buy online um old deodorant bottles <laughs> uh because uh why not um I yeah think that's brilliant I mean, you could also, you know, expand your habit into buying all the weird new deodorant scents that they're coming out with. Like, I definitely saw one the other day that was Yeti scented. As in, like, (laughs) you two can smell like a Yeti. Well, I kind of, I have to admit that I do actually buy uh, another thing online related to uh, body odor, but it's um, actually these really uh it's snake oil i buy for pheromone cologne online like the stuff that's like a guaranteed to nab you uh, a woman typically it's targeted at like white male white cis dudes who who just want to spritz something on on a lady and have her like follow him home um percent of the time it works 100 percent of the time (laughs) it's amazing (laughs) um and they and they have like all this pseudoscience uh promises and yeah that yeah it's a it's a wormhole if you disappear into the the youtube uh promo for this stuff but yeah i've i've purchased uh quite a number um for this like kind of pheromone bore project stunt art installation thing that uh actually got cut from the book but yeah i can tell you about it if you'd like well i do want to talk a little bit about um pheromones actually while we're there um because one of the cool things about sweat that I learned from this book is that, yes, people are embarrassed and they probably don't need to be. Oh my God, chill out. Um, it's, it, um, is that sweat contains information. The stink of our sweat. Well, first of all, the stink of our sweat is in a way bacterial poo because it's not our sweat itself that stinks. It's the bacteria break down the sweat and it's the byproducts of the bacterial digestion that actually produce the smell. So it's kind of bacterial poop that is smelling in your armpits, which I love. Um, But there's also so much information in that. Um, And you note that we actually identify people by smell. We, you know, babies identify their caretakers by smell. Um, parents identify their babies <laughs> by smell. And you actually cite research noting that the rest of us continue to do this through our lives. Um, and this really startled me because I've never noticed anyone talking about identifying someone through their smell. And I was wondering, is this also kind of a taboo kind of topic that smell can be someone's kind of signature? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, right? Even siblings who haven't seen each other in several years can identify the body odor of uh, a brother or a sister. And, you know, we have, you know, in our minds, nostalgia uh, about the smell of maybe our grandmother's house or, you know, the smell of, you know, spring or or whatever. But, but definitely how people smell is something that we definitely are aware of and take note of. Um, but it's really interesting because, you know, that, that cocktail of, of odor molecules that, you know, distinguishes your pong from my pong um, could perhaps be attractive to, you know, somebody we were romantically involved with. Um, and that is often what people think when they think of pheromones, right? They think, oh, um, I love him, her, them because uh, of their smell. But what's interesting is that when you know what the strict definition of, of a pheromone is, that doesn't seem to make sense. Right? I was going to ask, what are pheromones supposed to be? Because they aren't right. the part of the smell that you smell. So, okay. So by the way, like I should, 
I should caution that like the strict definition of a pheromone is like if you ever want to get uh, a bunch of scientists uh, in, you know, a knockdown drag out fight, it's like to ask them to define that. <laughs> um, but like effectively, typically, you know, a pheromone, at least a sex pheromone, um, is released by one member of a species, um, and it consistently has uh, an effect on uh, another member of the species. So let me give you the example of bombacol, which was like the first pheromone um, described. So if uh, a female silkworm moth um, wants to find love, um, she releases this odor, bombacol, and literally, all the males in the region will make a beeline towards her, right? And so it's working on all the men and all the females make this this molecule. There's nothing like, there's not like a unique odor print to that particular um, silkworm moth. And another example, uh, pigs. Um, they, uh, so a male will produce um, androstenol and androstenone in his saliva. And when he breathes heavily on a female in heat, um, she will spin around and lift her hind legs, and, which is sort of like a message that she is ready to start a family, like she effectively gets into position. Um, and this works on uh, all females in estrus, like who are ready to mate um, all the time or most of the time. And so this idea of a pheromone is this molecule or molecules that, um, you know, has this very potent and reproducible effect. And that's really inconsistent with what pop culture um, likes to present pheromones, right? People like to present it as the thing that distinguishes me to my one and only, right? It's the thing that made me fall in love with him or her and not that other person. Um, and that's really inconsistent with what actually a pheromone is, um, you know, according to, you know, the, the, the scientists who, who study these things. And it also gives me the terrible vision of a bunch of desperate guys in bars breathing in women's faces. And uh, please never do that. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, never know, do right? that. You, when you think about right, what a, a pheromone actually is, like a sex pheromone, then it's terrifying to think that we might actually perhaps one day find a human sex pheromone. Because like, what kind of awful power would that molecule possess? That and is deeply ethically fraught. Yeah. Oh, right. And scientists have been searching, though, for, for years because, of course, right, we have these two kinds of sweat glands. We have the sweat glands that produce the salty stuff that helps us cool down. And then we have the apocrine glands, the ones that appear in armpits at puberty um, and turn and, – and that sweat is, like, waxy, and that's the sweat that gets eaten by microbes and turns into uh, the majority of our body odor. And because it appears at puberty – um, you know, scientists think, well, it's got to have something to do with sexual maturation. So why would we produce this smell at puberty if it wasn't somehow involved in mating? And so, you know, many researchers have looked um, impotently in the, sorry, in, in the armpit um, for, you know, chemicals that are pheromones. And, you know, they've, they've come up with like all sorts of contenders, but there's been um, nothing that has been, you know, conclusively shown that, you know, this molecule comes out of an armpit and it is a sex pheromone and here it is and look at what it exactly does. I do wonder why they keep looking for pheromones when there's so many things in, that come out of our armprits that we can smell. So why not look at those? <laughs> right? Because one of the interesting things about pheromones is that often they're supposed to be kind of scentless. They're sensed via a different organ, um, like the vomeronasal organ, um, things like that. They're supposed to be this idea that pheromones are somehow chemically different. But I mean, there's plenty of smells that humans produce that we can smell perfectly well. <laughs> right. So you're kind of alluding to this issue of uh, consciously smelling and reacting to something or unconsciously 
smelling and reacting to something or consciously smelling something, but unconsciously reacting to it. Right. Um, And yeah, it's super complex. And, you know, what's interesting is like, obviously, we consciously smell the body odor of the people we love and and are closest to. We we can't help it. Um, And we have these conscious reactions. We're like, oh, yeah, that's my brother or my grandma. Um, But there's all these like unconscious signals that scientists are determining are coming from our body odor. And it's not only just related to sex. So, um, you know, we often use the word uh, pheromone and it has, has all this sexual baggage. But, you know, when scientists study this stuff, they, they call it chemo signals um, because these signals, um, maybe they don't uh, have this you know, crazy response that, you know, those, those pheromones that I, I described to you have, but perhaps they have these subtle impacts on our behavior. And so, for example, um, researchers have done uh, really interesting studies on illness. And uh, what they did was they, t- they took a, a bunch of healthy people and um, they effectively injected them with a component of a bacteria uh, that would kind of prime their immune system, that would get their immune system busting up and, you know, get it ramping up. And then they, you know, took uh, T-shirts, they took body odor samples from these people who didn't show signs of, si- of sickness, but who had immune systems that were on overdrive uh, in response to what they thought might be a pathogen. And when they, you know, gave this to to women to smell, women in particular, um, you know, kind of like were were repulsed by it, were they 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 were repelled by it, even though um, you know, there was no outward sign of sickness in the in these people. And so, you know, that it's like this tantalizing suggestion that perhaps, you know, in the body odor, in that cocktail of molecules that's going up off of our bodies and being detected by our nose, either consciously or unconsciously, some part of that is giving cues that, you know, we might be sick, um, which of course would be important information to know for human evolution. You know, for, for most of human history, the biggest um, threat to us has been, you know, infectious disease. So we would want to uh, avoid somebody who, who was sick. And, you know, another molecule that's not sex-related but um, is really interesting or is, you know, this I, I, idea of trying to find an anxiety molecule in our, in our sweat. The smell um, of the, fear. The smell of fear, right. Because law enforcement um, have long said um, that, you know, when they do interrogations of people, you know, people come in smelling like themselves, but everybody leaves smelling the same way in this kind of stinky anxiety way. And, you know, researchers have also done studies where people can identify when um, others are, are fearful. Um, but again, no molecule has been plucked out, um, even though there's a lot of um, organizations that are super interested in trying to figure out, you know, what molecule might be responsible for the smell of fear, the military, for example, because uh, you can imagine that if you have a bunch of soldiers in a tank and, you know, somebody gets super scared uh, that, you know, what if this fear is catching? And so, you know, they'd ideally want to find a way to, to capture and sequester, you know, the anxiety fear so that, you know, people could stay focused and not get scared themselves. And, you know, more diabolically uh, and uh, alarmingly, you know, there's also the potential that, you know, if you could identify a molecule that was responsible for the smell of fear, right, for communicating, hey, I'm really afraid, um, that you could perhaps use this as a as some sort of weapon, right? You could spray it on crowds of demonstrators, right, to, you know, take away, um, you know, to, to make them afraid of, of, of demonstrating or, you know, on, on enemy populations. There's, there's so many kind of alarmingly um, dark <laughs> potential applications of this, um, in addition to the kind of the interesting idea that, wow, you know, maybe we're communicating that we're afraid to one another um, through smells in, in our in our body odor. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really fascinating because in reading this book, 
yeah, my mind went to those dark places. Like, yeah. <laughs> wow, we could use sweat and smell, body smell in, in scary ways. And you also talk about um, how, for example, many people don't realize this, but your fingerprints are made of sweat. And people can analyze that sweat to find, you know, drugs that you've done, or crimes you've committed, you know, things like that. Uh, medicines maybe you've taken. And I was wondering, you know, did you talk to someone who works in ethics about this? Because it seems like there's a lot of potential to really misuse our sweat in ethically questionable ways. Oh, absolutely. I tried many times. I reached out to many bioethicists and I kept getting responses like, whoa, don't know about this. Um, yeah, not my bailiwick. Uh, and so that actually made me even more alarmed because I was like, why Why are there not researchers out there, you know, thinking about this? And, you know, in, in their defense, um, this technology is very new. So, Effectively, as you said, you know, our fingerprints um, are just actually sweat prints. Um, it's a mix of that like salty sweat that we produce uh, to cool down. Um, and then also sometimes like sebum, which is uh, kind of like the oily stuff uh, your skin produces to, to keep you, you know, hydrated or, you know, to keep you uh, having soft skin. Anyway, you know, we often think of fingerprints as this um, this print um, that you can, you know, look at and, you know, identify, you know, a perpetrator um, based on how it looks. But analytical technology is getting so sophisticated that you can, in the very microscopic um like deposition of sweat, like a fingerprint has a very small amount of sweat in it. In that sweat, you can identify all sorts of, you know, dark things, right? So I actually had my sweat uh, fingerprints uh, taken uh, by um, a researcher uh, who's awesome in Sheffield. Um, and uh, effectively, we watched caffeine um, appear in my sweat. So it, we did it early in the morning, which was like very traumatic for me because I usually am completely incompetent without coffee. And she was like, listen, you're going to have to come to my lab without coffee. <laughs> and, and then uh, they took some of my, my sweat fingerprints and there was no caffeine signal in it. And then, you know, I got to drink uh, a coffee and, you know, 15 minutes later, there it is um, appearing in my sweat. It's like 15 to 30 minutes it takes usually. But, you know, this sort of research, this sort of analysis, this chemical analysis of fingerprints is different from the, you know, visual analysis. And um, you can discover all sorts of things like biomarkers for cancer, um, you know, evidence of uh, illegal drugs. <laughs> um, so if I had uh, drunk um if I had put a little whiskey in my coffee in the morning and or snorted a line of cocaine on the side for a morning pick-me-up, all of that would have appeared also in my fingerprint marks. And so you can imagine in the same way um, that, you know, surreptitious collection of DNA is, you know, contentious to, to ethicists, what if um, law enforcement could start taking surreptitiously our fingerprints, lifting them from all the things that we touch, and then determining, uh, you know, what we've been imbibing? Um, and not only law enforcement, what if this happened at work? Um, what if this happened, you know, uh, in, you know, places like, uh, you know, court court uh, the courtroom say if you were a parent trying to get custody of your child or you know there's all these sorts of ways where you can imagine um, chemical analysis of fingerprints getting very um, private um, secrets uh, into the public sphere and so that that I find uh, very alarming and I really wish um, this was something that um, you know, an academic uh, thinker uh, trained in bioethics would really uh, take on. I mean, maybe, maybe now they will. Maybe, I hope so. maybe some of them are listening. <laughs> um, but I did want to get back to kind of smell and sex because, like, our minds are in the gutter, right? Like, that's where we're going. Yeah. Anyway, um, and and we know, for example, that some humans are attracted to other humans' body odors, right? Mm -hmm. And 
you know, people, different, different people are attracted to different smells. And so you actually looked into this yourself because you went smell dating. And I love that this is a thing. And I was wondering if you could talk about what smell dating is supposed to do. Right. Okay. So the premise is that, you know, yes, certainly as you allude to, you know, I may, you know, really enjoy uh, the smell of uh, my lover. But even if that's not my fetish or or your fetish, uh, at some point you are going to smell the body odor of your lover and it's pretty much going to be a make or break moment. And so the premise of smell dating is a little bit like, you know, we might as well cut to the chase because if you don't like this person's body odor, this is not going to work out. Um, So it skips to to the kind of most critical moment or one of them uh, in, you know, whether a relationship is going to work or not. Uh, But in practice, it's really, really fun. Um, So this is how it works. You... I was actually in Moscow for one of these smell dating events, but they happen all over the world. I've heard of them happening in Rio de Janeiro, in New York City, in Berlin. Um, But the one I went to was in Moscow. And uh, it happened in a park um, on a sunny afternoon. And you show up, and the first thing that you're supposed to do is to wipe off um, with kind of like a, a, like a, a little... What do you call them? The, moist the things towelette. that we all. Thank you. A moist <laughs> towelette, an odor-free moist towelette. Uh, you you take off any kind of product that you're wearing that has smell. Um, so perfume. You also are instructed to wipe down your armpits, um, and if correct, you, you make a clean slate. And then you start doing calisthenics. So uh, we were like taken through a round of burpees and like jump squats and, you know, things like that uh, to work up a sweat. And then you're handed this cotton pad. So like a dry little pad. And you're supposed to dab yourself down, particularly in your armpit area. And then you go to the organizers and they have this glass jar that's numbered. And you put your little cotton pad in the glass jar and you remember your number. Um, and the numbered glass jars are placed on a table and everybody is invited to sniff them. Uh, there's no distinguishing for gender preferences, uh, or anything. Um, it's uh, a free for all, which I loved. Um, and you just go through and, uh, and sniff around and you pick your top five and, of the top five, you give those numbers to the organizers, and you hope that somebody else has picked your number two. Um, and if there's a match where I pick your number and you pick mine, um, in Moscow at least, you would get this like VIP bracelet to this all-you-can-drink vodka cocktail lounge, and uh, you could go with your match to um, you know see if the personality and the looks uh, also worked and not just the smell. Anyway, I did this and oh my gosh, it was so interesting um, because some of those jars are really not great. Um, to my <laughs> nose, not, right? Like who right. knows? Maybe my mine was really not great to some people, but you know, some of them were just like really pleasant odors. Like it wasn't even like, it's like you identify it as like, oh yeah, that's another human. And, and it's kind of, it's nice. It's not, you know, it doesn't, you know, turn me into like uh, a horny uh, pig or like, you know, I'm thinking of those like pheromone uh, examples I was giving you. It doesn't make you uh, crazy, uh, but um, they're just like pleasant. And then there was actually one odor that I smelled that I was like, whoa, now that is hot. And it, it didn't like drive me crazy, but I was like, wow, this is very reminiscent of sex. And it reminds me that sex is a really nice thing. Um, and I can't even explain that. Um, so I certainly put that number down. Um, I got matched with somebody, not with that person, but with like the person who kind of reminded me of like a grassy field. Um, and uh, it was really fun to kind of get to know her. Uh, she was a really cool person. What I found really fascinating, actually, about your smell dating story in the book is that most of the people doing the smell dating didn't seem to actually be looking for a date. Like, 
<laughs> they seemed it seemed more that they were interested in doing it just kind of for science like like you were doing and i was wondering did you did you find anyone in the smell dating did anyone actually end up getting a date a date date <laughs> right so um what's really so you're those are like two interesting separate questions and I will answer both of them. Um, so there was one, there was all sorts of couplings that that came out of this exercise, uh, some of which were like really hilariously uh, never going to happen. But I did encounter at the VIP lounge this like totally sweet uh, gangly guy with this, um, y- you know, young woman who, uh, and, and they were like, really goofy like I, I swung by to, to chat with them and he's like we're both students as if like that was a match made in heaven um, and uh you know so that was sweet and like there was some serious romantic chemistry there and I, I really liked that um I also interviewed this other guy who um so the organizers did I think gosh maybe three or four separate rounds of this smell dating thing and he told me that he kept doing them again and again trying to like match with somebody and Aww. like the only time he ended up matching uh with anybody he matched with this other guy uh, he's a straight guy he went to the VIP lounge with that guy cuz he was like this guy seems really nice and we both want uh you know, free vodka cocktails. Um, But he was like, he told me he was like really bummed out that, you know, he never ended up uh, getting matched with, you know, somebody that it could ultimately work out. So, you know, I think, you know, of course the sample size is small, right? Like I think there was maybe 30 or 40 people doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You'd probably, to, to do this with true scientific rigor, you'd need, you know, a lot more individuals, yeah. Um, so I was noticing, you know, the more books I read, and I read many science books partially for the show, um, and the more I work on my own book, um, which, hey guys, I'm writing a book. So that was that one. Hey. Anyway, um, the more I realized that there's so much that goes into a book that never makes it into the book. Um, for every book that you end up reading, every science book, it's like the tip of an iceberg, and there's this huge mass underneath of stories that just didn't quite fit, you know, didn't quite make it in. Um, and so for every book, there are just fantastic stories that get cut because they didn't quite fit. And so I was wondering, what got cut from the sweat book? Was there any amazing story that kind of slipped through your sweaty fingers as the, <laughs> as, as one might say? Um, yeah, there are like two that I'm sort of bereft, didn't make it into the book. Um, the first is I actually got my sweat glands counted by this awesome scientist named Andrew Best. And uh, hilariously, uh, to get your sweat glands counted, you need dental polymer and mild electrocution. <laughs> so he was like, you need to know that this is involved. I'm like, sign me up. Um for the so, sake of science. Yes, exactly. Um, and so effectively, um, you know, the way you, you always see this number in dermatology textbooks that humans have uh, between like two and five million sweat glands. And sometimes like the low end of that is like 1.5 million. And the way that this is determined is it was like determined like decades ago using cadaver skin where, you know, researchers take representative swaths in different parts of uh, a cadaver's body um, and figure out, you know, using histology, you know, they stain the skin and you can see the the sweat glands and they do a count. And because, you know, different people have different densities of sweat glands in different parts of their body, they kind of figure out representative, you know, densities of sweat glands and then they do kind of an overall estimation. But that count is of, you know, just sweat glands writ large. There's no evidence that they're actually functional, right? So to actually figure out, you know, how many functional sweat glands you have, um, you need to kind of catch them in the act. And that's what Andrew Best uh, is doing for a really interesting research project that he's working on. And he uh, kindly offered to, to like help me count my sweat glands. And so effectively to catch sweat glands like in the act, uh, 
he takes dental polymer. So that's that putty that if you ever have been fitted for braces or a retainer, um, this is the thing that they use to take the impression of your jaw and your teeth. Um, and it's a very, very soft polymer. And so what he does is he like makes kind of like a little pancake about the size of a fist and uses that, um, places it on top of your skin uh, and effectively takes an impression of your sweat glands pushing sweat out, right? So all the little sweat droplets push and make a small little impression. It looks like, you know, stars on a starry sky, except in dental polymer. Um, and uh, the thing is, though, is he needs your sweat glands to be in like full on berserk mode. Um, and the way that he does that is he uses a drug called pilocarpine. And pilocarpine is like this. Um, yeah, it opens the floodgates. It's like on and like you start to sweat. And what they do is it's in this kind of gel that you put over your skin and he uses like mild electrocution, a mild current to push the drug into your skin topically. So first you you have like the drug and then he quickly removes the the, the gel, um, cleans you off and slaps on this dental polymer, slaps on is perhaps, he, he gently applies uh, the <laughs> dental polymer and your sweat glands that have all gotten the like, let's go, um, are in full berserk mode. And they like, after just a few seconds, they like, they, they push, the sweat glands are pushing little droplets and they're, they're making little impressions. And so that's how you get a count of your actual active sweat glands. And, you know, he does this in representative places over the body. And then you can uh, figure out, um, kind of do an, a total body estimation. And as it turns out, I have 3 million sweat glands. Um, We've known each other long enough for me to share this very personal information. Oh, thank you. Uh, so you're like slightly you're, above average, you think? I, I'm actually kind of smack dab in the middle, right? Like two to five or 1.5 to, to five. But, you know, as I had mentioned to you, like I was actually pretty surprised. I'm like, hey, I always thought I was like, a, like you know, I sweated, you know, on the higher side of the continuum. And, you know, you know, he made the interesting point that, of course, it's not just how many sweat glands you have. It's, of course, like the flux, right? Like, so, you know, you can do more with less if you're just like pumping out a lot of sweat, um, right? Yeah, I mean, so some of them not... just might be very good at their jobs. Yeah, exactly. And mine are just exceptional at their jobs, you know. Well, and I know that um, there are some studies, uh, this wasn't in your book, but there are some studies that show that, for example, athletes um, and people who work out a lot or people who kind of live in hot environments may sweat sooner. Um, oh, yeah, that was in my heat. book. Yeah, yeah. Um, they... Uh... Yeah, so effectively, you know, this idea that there are, you know, people who don't sweat, um, you know, that those those people that I personally am jealous of, um, it's actually very unlikely that they're not sweating. Like we are all sweating unless you have um, a genetic condition and that's extremely rare. And that you we do not want that you do not want. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, you can't control your body temperature, right? Um, but most of us are sweating at all times. And the people who, you know, in hot weather don't appear to be sweating at all while, you know, the rest of us are like, you know, have like drips pouring off our body. Those people are just like extremely efficient sweaters. So their sweat glands are very attuned to releasing exactly the right amount for the temperature um, cooling required, right? So that's actually kind of a pretty amazing feat because if you imagine that, you know, really wasteful sweaters like me, I, I sweat a lot um, in the hot weather, um, you will, you need to actually rehydrate, you need to drink um, uh, to, to replenish. Whereas people who are, you know, not appearing to sweat at all are, you know, obviously doing it extremely efficiently. They, they also need to hydrate, but um, they're not as wasteful. But yeah, your point about, you know, athletes um, is totally true, right? So people who have, um, who 
who effectively do high levels of sport, right? If you are an athlete, you need to sweat to cool down. And your body has learned that, oh crap, when, you know, that Olympic uh, runner uh, sprints, they, they are going to need to cool down pretty fast. And so often um, people who uh, train often start sweating sooner, um, because their bodies have learned that, wow, a little bit of activity usually means a lot of activity and we're going to need to like get cracking on the like temperature control. That's what I feel that my body does um, is that I start walking and my body's like, we've trained for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's really interesting because when I also started going to the sauna more, I started to sweat sooner and faster too. And I'm you like, trained. Really? Yeah, exactly. Because my body's like, oh my God, she's going into that extremely hot room for a very long time. Got to get cracking. Um, yeah. So basically we don't necessarily want fewer sweat glands. We want sweat glands that are a little less klutzy. Yes. Efficiency. Efficiency. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Even though I have to say I sweated bullets the whole time. This was fantastic. <laughs> it's really my pleasure. I sweat all the time. So yeah, I was sweating too. And if you'd like to learn more about Sarah Everts, we've got links on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. And if it's your first time and you like what you hear, please do subscribe to the show. Maybe follow us on Twitter or Facebook so you never miss us. And if you are up for it, we've got links on our site to our Patreon page, where you can help us keep the podcast going. We truly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 